0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: What do scholars owe their society? Should they try to interact with and influence the general public? Today's guest answers both questions with a definitive yes. Andrew J. Hoffman is the award-winning, wholesome professor of sustainable enterprise at the University of Michigan with joint appointments at the Ross School of Business and the School for Environment and Sustainability. Hoffman has published and consulted widely and has been honored for his work by, among others, the Aspen Institute and as winner of the Rachel Carson Book Prize. Welcome to the Van Leer Institute Series on Ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome Andrew J. Hoffman to the show today to talk about his new book, the Engaged Scholar, Expanding the Impact of Academic Research in Today's World. Andy Hoffman, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Renee. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: What is the scientist's social contract?
0: That is an idea that was um, uh, Jane Lipchenko put it out when she was the president of the AAAS, saying that scientists have an obligation to use their research to provide value to society. And that, that obligation is born out of the fact that they are um, producing valuable knowledge and they are also funded by uh, grants, by tuition dollars, by, by the public. And so we have an obligation to use that, those resources towards the benefit of society.
1: Well, that makes perfect sense. That's the (laughs) capitalistic arrangement. We support you. You give something back to us. What does the Rand Corporation consider the existential crisis of our time? Hmm.
0: Well, I want to begin by saying that it isn't, just transactional there is a moral component here um we do live uh we do have a place in society as academics as generators of knowledge to share them and that does tie in with the rand corporation study they did a study called truth decay and they had four primary conclusions from this report and i would like to point out first of all that's quite interesting that the rand corporation did this study they're basically a defense department think tank but they looked at the quality of uh discourse around science and and knowledge in this country, and their four conclusions are, number one, we are debating facts, which is concerning. Two, we are blending opinion and fact, and I think this is important. I I try and highlight this to my students. When you read a news story, how much are they telling you as fact and how much are they telling you how to think about those facts? Number three, we're distrusting previously trusted sources of information, namely the academy. And number four, we've never seen this level of, uh, of confusion, of disinformation, of misinformation. And social media is a big driver of that. And so that report, to me, lays the gauntlet at the door of the academy. Our stock and trade is the generation of knowledge. And if anyone's going to step into the fray and try and clarify uh, the information that's being used out there, No one has a more important role, to my mind, than scientists within the academy.
1: Well, scientists within the academy are not solely responsible for the distrust of facts as facts. We remember uh, famously the uh, alternative facts uh, offered by a presidential spokesperson um, facts in themselves are not viewed as uh, immutable. A, a recent guest on our show, Gary Smith, wrote a book called "Distrust," and he blames science itself, in part, for the current distrust of science. What What do you think of that?
0: I'd like to know more about his argument, but I think that scientists—and I use the term broadly to include all academics have not been very good at engaging the public. Uh, Some of them don't want to do it, and that creates an air of uh, elites. You know, what's the perception many people have of academics? Well, they're sitting in the ivory tower, sipping lattes and and enjoying life, um, which is not the truth. But also their their expertise, their ability to speak in the general public, sometimes... um, confuses matters, doesn't make things clear, and and we need to, in my opinion, add to our training and our rewards and our abilities an ability to speak to the general public.
1: Well, in your book, you're very critical of tenure committees uh, for not valuing engagement activities, the interaction between academics and the public. Uh, at the other extreme, uh, there are think tanks who give grants that shape public communication of science, often in, in line with the uh, ideology of the think tanks and their own political agendas. So how should the scholar walk the line between those two very powerful push and pulls?
0: It's, uh, it's, it's a very challenging issue. Um, uh, um, you began by my comments about tenure committees. And if you want to change behavior, um, the first place you should look is the reward system. And the reward system in academia right now privileges scientific publications, citation counts, H-index, and doesn't give much attention to the broader impact of that work. And until that changes, it would be hard to expect academics to start to change what they do. Um, in terms of how they bring it out into the world and and entering what is a very messy terrain, uh, this is very challenging, which again, requires training, it requires support, it uh, requires an entire infrastructure to help academics play this role of dare I say it, a public intellectual, but to step out into the fray and understand not only the information they're transmitting, but the political context in which they're transmitting it. And this is very important because speaking in the general public is not the same as speaking in a seminar room. Uh, It's very different. Uh, It's a very political environment. You need to understand uh, what you're saying, what they're hearing, why are they hearing it, in order to learn how to communicate properly.
1: Well, speaking of political, uh, the recent movie that's still in the theaters, Oppenheimer, um, it features an engaged scientist who paid a big price for his engagement. Uh, are even tenured academics fearful of engagement, especially if their work argues against some of the prevailing popular beliefs of their peers or of the public or of the powerful?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um if uh, you are going to offend your uh, financial supporters, whether it's the government or uh, a corporation, comp- uh, some senior academics may be afraid to, to ruffle those feathers. Also, some senior academics, uh, you know, <laughs> they, they stick to their knitting. They, they, they got tenure, they got full professor for writing academic papers, and then they become full professor and they continue to write academic papers. A colleague said to me one time, one of, the, one of the problems with academia is you get too many senior professors thinking like junior professors. And I understand that. And some people should continue to do that. Uh, the argument in my book is not that everyone should get involved in public and political discourse, but that we should broaden the tent of what different ways that one can act the role Uh, of academic scholar. And those who want to bring it out into the public should be supported, encouraged, and trained on how to do it. And so that's the point that I'm trying to make in my book. And I would add that there's a whole generation of junior scholars coming in who really resonate. And I I thought of them when I wrote this book. Um, They want to have a difference in the real world. And the idea of Coming to the end of your days and looking back and trying to measure the impact of your life on citation counts, in my opinion, that's going to be very unsatisfying. The impact we have is on how we changed how people think, uh, whether it's our students, and that's an area of impact, or the broader public. I think a public engagement is just expanding the concept of what is my classroom and bringing my work out into the The particular audiences that I want to reach, which for me, because I'm a business school professor, includes business audiences to try and get them to think more carefully about the issues that I study.
1: What do you think is the relationship, if any, between the uh, scholarly scholarly retreat to the academy and the larger society's general anti-elitism, populism, the, the apparent democratization of opinion and the corresponding rejection of experts?
0: Well, certainly, and this speaks to the RAND Corporation study, that the democratization of knowledge, that <clears throat> you don't have gatekeepers anymore. Uh, this uh, You can put anything out on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, <clears throat> Instagram, and you can find an audience. And so without gatekeepers, um, it's the Wild West. And so... For that reason, I know some academics who are hesitant to step into the fray. But again, if we sit on the sidelines, that won't save us. Um, In my opinion, if we don't enter the debate and bring together credible knowledge in order to give people out there information that they can use from a trusted source, uh, then who is going to do it? And, and certainly we're entering a domain where there are competing voices, some with political agendas, and, and many would argue that the university has a political agenda, that it leans left, um, that, that uh, it has a, a left-leaning bias. Um, I think that's in part uh, the product of academics who refuse to engage in the public debate allowing people to form their own opinions. Um, Many people in this country, and the world for that matter, don't understand the scientific process, don't understand how information is generated within the scientific community. And for that, that vacuum allows people to insert their own idea about uh, the motives, the tactics, and uh, the ultimate objectives of scientific research.
1: And the public sometimes thinks, if I can dare to speak for them, uh, that, that when academics talk, they're merely expressing their own opinions, which are no better or worse than anyone else's. And academics often do just that. You will have a mathematician who expresses her opinion on a political issue. That opinion is no better or worse than anyone else's. So uh, there, there's a, a subtle double-edge to the idea of the scholars engaging in the public.
0: And, and you, you, you bring up a really important point, and that is, are you speaking in your area of expertise or you're speaking as a regular citizen? Um, I do also feel some frustration when I hear climate scientists having really strong opinions on certain policies or uh, economists talking about climate science. Uh, If you stepped outside your area of expertise, are you now becoming part of the cacophony? Um, It's a challenge though. You know, we're told to to wear multiple hats. And when you speak as a citizen, speak as a citizen. When you speak as a scientist, you speak as a scientist. In practice, I don't know how you do that. Um, But Uh, I think that in the public debate, uh, we should, as best we can, stay within the areas of our expertise uh, to maintain the authority that we have because we're grounding our statements on a strong body of literature and not just our opinion.
1: Uh, yes, and in recent years, at least in the social sciences, um, my area, uh, but also in others, there's been uh, what, what uh, academics have called the replication crisis, that we have a body of work, but when we examine the validity of that body of work, it uh, sometimes doesn't measure up. Is that the same in your field?
0: Uh, well, I am in the social sciences as well, but more in the macro end, but uh, the replicab- replicability crisis is a serious kink in the armor that allows people to say, see, uh, the, the, the research is questionable, therefore, I'm not going to listen to anything they say. Um, and that's that's the area I think you're speaking to. And we also have issues of data fabrication. Um, uh, w- academics are humans just like any other. And... Um, we're going to have our challenges, but uh, if if you're predisposed to dismiss academic research, you're going to latch on to information that supports that view, and if you're predisposed to to agree with academic research, you're going to be more willing to put aside contrary information, and that's the that's the challenge in our world today is to try and form solid opinions with the overflow of information that's coming towards us and recognize that nothing is perfect. When, for example, um, scientists come out with research that uh, challenges <clears throat> the body of knowledge that precedes it, does that mean that scientists don't know? Or does it mean that we are open to changing positions based on new information, new research? And I think that anytime there's a shift within the body of literature, people say, see, they don't know. And that that's not an accurate description of how science works.
1: That's true, that's true. And I, I think uh, scientists and academics need to make that clear and and offer their newest understandings with humility. Exactly, uh, exactly. Now, 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 some scholars just love their work. They love to discover, to understand, and they don't feel the need to communicate it beyond their peers and their students. What do you think distinguishes those who feel a mission to share the knowledge or affect public policy, community-engaged scholarship, as you call it in the book, or the Carnegie Foundation calls it, mm-hmm. uh, from from people who just are content to enjoy the beauty of bench science?
0: Uh, the the uh, what I want the, the point I want to make in the book is that there's room for both, and those who you know, create bench science, basic knowledge, if you want to put it back in the earliest terms, basic versus applied. Um, there's, there's room for both within the academy, but right now the academy privilege is one, basic. I think of myself as more on the applied end. I almost think of it like a supply chain where you have those who are doing basic research and then it moves down the line. And then those who are more inclined to bring it to the public and, um, I think it, it, I stand on the shoulders of those who do that basic research. So that we're all part of an ecosystem that generates knowledge. But I want, I think of my public, I think of my audience as broader than just the academy. Uh, others think of their audience as the academy, and that's great. Um, again, I'm just trying to make the case that we have somewhat of a monoculture right now. And I want to create more heterogeneity.
1: And talk about those scientists that successfully communicate or even persuade the public.
0: It's a it's 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 a different set of skills. Um, uh, it, it it you need to be able to be accessible, be open. Um, be approachable. I think of people like, for example, Neil de Grace Tyson, uh, very good science communicator. Um, he has great passion. He can put things in a language that people understand. Uh, he's approachable. He's likable. Um, this is not your typical description of an academic scholar, uh, but there are those that are doing it. And in the social sciences, an increasing number. I'm thinking, for example, Adam Grant, um, who is at Penn, who's really done a great job of pulling together a, uh, a, a large body of literature and bringing out into the general public that can then use it, uh, apply it, try and um, make value out of it in the general public. And so, it, 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 it's a it's a it's a posture. It's a it's a personality trait. It's a skill set. I, I think it can be learned, but only to a certain degree. Um, I have been involved in conversations on on research in this area, and uh, I do have a little bit of um, sarcasm towards it because a lot of people will do this research and analyze how people respond to information, and it's very scientific. But again, at the end of the day, you need to be approachable, accessible, honest, um, have an air of integrity. Uh, I liken it to the, the idea that if you are speaking to the public, the dynamics may be similar to you speaking to your partner. And if you're trying to work out an issue in your relationship, if you say to your partner, "I have this scientific paper right here that says if we follow this flowchart, we will work out our relationship," and your partner would have every right to say, uh, "No, sorry, that's not going to work." Um, possibly even jam that paper down your throat. How do you work out your issues in your relationship by being open and honest and um, and engaged? And I think that's the same for scholars as well, which means listening as much as speaking. Um, There is a a term in in the science communication literature of the knowledge deficit uh, model, and that is that I, as an academic, come to you as a layperson. I look at you as your brain being half empty, so I'm going to pour my knowledge into your brain. You're going to start to think like me, and you're going to start to make the right decisions. Uh, The public does not like that model. I actually think our students don't like that model. Um, it comes down to engagement and the word humility, you brought it up earlier, I think it's important. Um, there are many sources of knowledge in the world They don't all lie within the academy. Um, there's vernacular knowledge, if you want to understand what's going on in the community, you can research academic papers, you can go out and talk to people in the community. If you want to understand what's going on in business, people in business. Uh, A, they live in that world, they know a lot about it, but B, uh, a lot of business is doing uh, good research. Government agencies, nonprofits are doing good research. So um, I think that uh, uh, that word humility uh, is one that we can flag for this conversation.
1: Would you say that Anthony Fauci was a successful communicator during the COVID pandemic?
0: That's a, you know... What an extraordinary set of circumstances to be thrust into communicating on such a difficult issue. Uh, so it's very hard to judge him because the, the, the circumstances were just so extreme and so unusual that uh, could he have done things differently? Absolutely. Um, does that mean he was wrong? No, I'm not so sure because uh, he had to do it on the fly. Uh, In a context, again, that was just so extraordinary that um, he had a lot of history on doing this, so he did the best he could. Would someone else have done it differently? Yes. Would the outcome have been different? Yes. Would it have been better? I don't know. I don't know. That's a really tough question.
1: Yeah, you really worked at it every day. Yeah, and it, yeah. it was not easy. And not uh, easy. In, you know, it's in interesting.
0: Your... I When I first started um, doing my work on um, climate change perceptions, uh, why do people disagree with the science, I started getting hate mail. And uh, it was new to me. It was kind of a shock. And uh, I my first thought was, well, I should have phrased things differently. And then I realized... That's only partially true because if someone's inclined to disagree with me, no matter what I say, they're going to disagree with me. Phraseology isn't going to help in that circumstance. Persistence will. And so, you know, would he have run into headwinds no matter what he said? I think so. If he had phrased things differently, would those headwinds have subsided? I don't think so. Um, But his persistence, uh, that's the key, I think.
1: Uh, you suggest that uh, scientists use techniques such as storytelling, but without watering down the work uh, or or inflating their own confidence in it. Um, I understand how that might happen in a clinical science. Uh, you can talk about, uh, for example, the increase uh, risk of suicide in adolescence in the states and illustrate it with an example, a story that would be very moving. But how would it work in other fields?
0: Well, storytelling, stories stick. People remember stories. When I give talks, I try and sprinkle them with stories. I try and open with a story. The story has to tie with what you're talking about, but people will remember those stories. Um, A good communicator is a good storyteller. There's even to the point where I know some universities have brought experts in to teach scientists how to tell stories. Um, uh, I was part of a, a group with the National Academies called the Science of Science Communication. And in one of our conferences, a central theme was storytelling. And so if you can find a compelling story that illustrates the point you're gonna make, I try and use the story and then try and go back to the science to say, what am I trying to communicate with that story? And it, and it does work. Uh, it, it it puts it uh, in a, in terms that, that people can relate to. And so in, in, in my work in the social sciences, everyday occurrences, I can try and tell stories that illustrate what I'm trying to get across with the social science research that I'm presenting. And nine times out of ten, they'll forget the social science research, but they'll remember the story.
1: Right. Uh what do you think about popular science outlets? The Scientific American, Psychology Today, Biblical Archaeological Review, all of those. Reflect on them for me.
0: Well, I think that we have before us as academic scholars a widening array of outlets, platforms, portals to reach different audiences. When I publish in what we call the A journals of my field, I'm hitting very disciplinary, very theoretically driven scholars. When I aim at the B journals, they're more empirically driven. When I enter or write in uh, journals that are, I call, I think of them as hybrid. You know, so psychology today is, it's, it's science, psychology, but for a lay audience. Within the world of business, we have journals like that as well, the Harvard Business Review. The Stanford Social Innovation Review, uh, the Sloan Management Review; these are all sort of hybrid journals. They hit a particular audience, and then you can get into the more popular media, um, whether that's, uh, you know, I'm just rattling off the top of my head, but Outdoor Magazine or or something like that, or even more importantly, the growing number of online portals that we have, whether that's the Conversation or the Monkey Cage or Medium. Um, these are all a widening array of platforms that hit a particular audience. And that gives us as academics an opportunity to say, this is the audience I want to hit, and these are the platforms I will use to hit them. I would add parenthetically that I think an interesting challenge, if you really think about where the intellectual conversation is in our society, um, it will be in places like the Atlantic, the New Yorker, the New Republic, national review and the challenges of getting into outlets outlets like that are significant they in many ways much harder than the academic journals of my field
1: yeah and in some ways being very familiar with writing for academic journals uh, mitigates against the ability to write for the Atlantic <laughs> or the New Yorker. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's
0: so true. Our, our, we, our writing can be so turgid and, oh, and dry. dense and hard. <laughs> and, 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 and in some ways, it, it needs to be that way. But I often tell my students, my doctoral students, if you can't explain your research in a way that Everyday people, whether it's your mother or father, brother, and sister, or someone on the street, if you can't explain it in a way that they understand it, I would I would wonder whether you truly understand your own research. I'm going to get in trouble for that one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, on social media, uh, disinformation spreads much faster than correct information. Is Can anything be done about that?
0: You know, this is the... These are the times we live in and at the root of it, you know, we've dropped social media into our society and who someone likened it to handing a loaded gun to a five-year-old. We have this tool and uh, even the developers of this tool uh, saw it as a a tool for social good and are really surprised and thrown by the extent to which it's gotten uh, disrupted, perverted. Um, and so the question comes, will we figure it out? Um, will we learn ways to turn this tool, which has tremendous benefit as well? Uh, social media brings education, brings, does bring credible knowledge and does bring a platform or a channel for disinformation. Um, can we rein it in? I think that's, that, that is one of the challenges of our time. Uh, the RAND Corporation said this is one of the this is the existential challenge of our time because if we don't agree on facts if we don't agree on information how can we solve anything if we don't if we don't start with a common baseline of information how can we address any of the challenges of our society uh, there's the big rub and so um, how can we turn this tool because it's not going to go away just like AI has entered the arena and we in academia are very concerned about it but recognizing you can't put that genie back in the bottle students are going to use it so how do we use it how do we how do we embrace it and turn it into a tool that is constructive because this isn't going to go away
1: and you've anticipated my final question what what do you imagine the impact will be of ai on the entire scholarly uh, enterprise the public's trust or distrust of science, and the process of engaging with and educating that public?
0: It is so new that that uh, we're looking out over a precipice and trying to figure it out. But I, I will say this, that, that um, there are some who look at AI within the classroom as a tool for cheating, that uh, students can use AI to write their papers, and this is true. I would also add parenthetically that uh, uh, I got an email from a company that knew I was a professor saying, do you not have time to grade your papers? We have an AI tool that can grade them for you, which creates a very funny kind of science fiction story where the students use AI to write the paper and the professor uses AI to grade the paper and everyone lives happily ever after. But that said, uh, you can't put this genie back in the bottle I think that there has been pressure and calls for changing the way we teach, evolving, and this uh, this this amplifies that pressure. And so how can we recognize that AI is here, it's here to stay, and how do we change what we do in the classroom to embrace it and not fight it? Uh, that is the operative challenge. And so, for example, I have a colleague who will pose a really big question in class, he'll have AI answer it, and then we'll have the students critique the AI's answer. That's an interesting way of approaching it rather than just simply ignoring it, putting your head in the sand and saying it's not there. Um, So how can we use it and shape it as a constructive tool and not fear it and try and uh, hide it as a destructive tool?
1: Well, I hope we manage it, uh, as we did with the calculator. There was a yeah. time when teachers just wouldn't want kids to bring calculators to school, and eventually the system learned to uh, incorporate that technology and teach arithmetic anyway.
0: I had to learn a slide rule when I was in ninth grade chemistry, and I hated it, but... <laughs> <laughs>
1: The book is The Engaged Scholar, Expanding the Impact of Academic Research in Today's World. Thanks for sharing your views with us today, Andy.
0: Thank you very much, Renee. I really enjoyed this.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.